NAB Show New York is where go-getters in media, entertainment, finance, and advertising connect and champion new content strategies. Discover new tools and solutions from 300-plus exhibitors and gain actionable insights from more than 50 conference sessions. Learn more at nabshowny.com and get your free core package. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Nicholas Rapold, and I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Film Comment. The 56th New York Film Festival began this past weekend, and we're presenting a series of live events and screenings at Lincoln Center. Our first Film Comment talk at the festival was called The Cinema of Experience. We've used the title before in looking at movies from multiple perspectives, and this year we focused on Asian and Asian American experience. In our current issue, Stephen Yoon talks about the idea of authenticity and what it meant for him to star in Burning from Korean auteur Lee Chang-dong. Our panel at the New York Film Festival takes the conversation in new directions with a wide-ranging and movingly personal discussion about representation. I was joined by Andrew Chan, web editor of the Criterion Collection, David Nin, director of press and publicity at Kino Lorber, Genevieve Yu, assistant professor of culture and media at the New School, and Andrew Ahn, director of the film Spa Night. Let's go now to the conversation and stay tuned for more talks later in the festival. It kind of jumping off point for this uh, was was burning and Stephen Yoon's ex, you know experiencing and casting he has an interview in in here, um, but there are also it's been a year of a couple other kind of flashpoints or touchstones um, for, in terms of representation, and I think a nice way to begin might be the 25th anniversary of the Joy Luck Club, which actually Andrew, uh, you wrote about for Film Comment, um, and you, you actually also wrote about Burning, but I mean, maybe you can kind of start it off for us. Uh, you know, what's, what's the significance of this film? Uh, what was it, the significance of it then in 93? And, and when you revisited it, you know, what kind of insight did it give to you in the kind of landscape of, of, of representation now for, for Asians and Asian Americans? Well, so I was seven years old when that film came out. It was 1993, and Crazy Rich Asians was the first um, predominantly Asian-American cast in the 20 years since that film came out. And revisiting that film to write that piece, I was mainly focusing on Tsai Chin's performance as this character, Auntie Lindo, who's one of four elderly um, women who um, are at the center of this family drama. And... It just really flooded me with all these memories of seeing this film, which is actually a very serious drama. It's rated R. There's a lot of crazy things that go on in it. There's a killing of a baby. There's a lot of sort of traumatic, um, tragic Chinese history that's um, compressed into it. But even at that age, I could pair it back to my parents, basically word for word, all of the dialogue. And so I think every... Asian-American, or at least Chinese-American from my generation, um, has this experience of intimacy with this film. And it really shaped the way that we understood generational conflict, cross-cultural conflict, and dealing with our our parents. Um, Really, it was the main text through which, as young Asian-Americans, we could come to understand ourselves as Asian, um, and for me particularly as Chinese. So, um, but it really existed in this void 
And so even though through the years we've talked about, oh, it's kind of melodramatic, it's kind of sappy in places, some parts aren't really super well constructed, but just the fact that it existed meant that we existed on the screen at some point in time. Um, so I think the, that's continued to be, it, it's crazy to me to think that 20 years on, I can still remember <laughs> basically every line in that film. I mean, I saw it at TIFF, they did an anniversary screening. So I like rushed over, I had like a break and like, it was emotional, like rewatching it. And there, it was everybody, I mean, it was like every Asian at TIFF was there, it was packed. <laughs> <laughs> and like, I hadn't seen it in so long. So revisiting it, 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 was, it really felt emotional and people were just, sobbing in the right parts and and I think everyone in that room just kind of thought about their own families and their own parents and even though I'd seen it a long time ago seeing it as a 39 year old man I I just thought about like the struggles that like you know the elders in my family went through and how they internalize a lot of that pain and they went through a lot of those experiences and um you know, it still holds up really well. It just, I think a lot of the Q&A, there was a lot of talk about how, you know, they thought after that happened, there would be sort of a boom of, you know, Asian talent, Asian cinema, and that wasn't the case, you know? It kind of reverted, and it took a very long time until Crazy Rich Asians came out. I think it's, it's really, like, telling that both the Joy Luck Club and Crazy Rich Asians are book adaptations, and, and that, like... I think the studio system is very, um, they need the guarantee of, of some sort of IP to like, right, to feel like that they could take a chance on something that's like Asian. Um, but yeah, like, I, like for me, uh, that, that kind of gap between, it's interesting because like, and as, as like as, as an independent filmmaker, um, uh, or a filmmaker who's made an independent film that had like a entirely Asian American cast, like it's funny to me for people to be like, oh, it's the, you know, Crazy Rich Asians is the first Asian American cast film in 20 years. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Studio film, just wanna let you know. Um, but there is something about like just the, uh, like how, these films are marketed, right? And and that they are supposed to be for like a bigger audience. But yeah, I mean, there, there's something for me, like the joy of the Joy Luck Club was less that like it was a mainstream film and more that like I thought Russell Wong was really cute, oh you know? God. And as like a very young <laughs> person, cute. like the watermelon had, scene. Yeah, like yeah. nascent homosexual feelings, you know? And it was just like, but um, but yeah, the, I, I think that in, in talking about an Asian American cinema culture, it's um, it is a little bit um, dangerous to just think of like those two movies, right? And and I, I'll also mention that both films have like very strong, if not almost like entirely, like their storylines are like in Asia, right? And and so like I wonder like what's the next, what's the big Asian American studio film that like takes place entirely in the U.S. and and what does that look like? And is that something that like studios feel like, well, if it's all in the US, like why wouldn't they just be, why would they be Asian? That's a little bit my fear. I noticed that too, um, watching Crazy Rich Asians and then revisiting Joy Luck Club recently, which I, I guess I had, 
you know, traumatically repressed my memory of watching it when I was 13, when it came out. Maybe because it's about Chinese mothers and daughters, and I was this very angsty Chinese American immigrant, you know, child of immigrants. Um, my only memory of Joy Luck Club was had been through friends where we called it um, being joy lucked by our mothers, oh. Um, oh. Uh, which <laughs> you can guess what that means. I mean, we're just um, usually we would converge after the holidays and talk about how <laughs> painful it was to be with, uh, but also you know this bittersweet way of being with our families. Um, but I noticed that the stories in some ways are kind of similar. That there's um, that there's uh, uh, a Chinese American or daughter of immigrants that um, finds her way somehow back to the home country. Um, and I was just trying to imagine what a kind of joy luck treatment of crazy rich Asians would be. Um, they're very different films, um, but this kind of intergenerational play between mothers and daughters um, is something that's been, that I've been sitting with a lot in, in thinking about these two films together. Well, I think a, a lot of the themes too is, you know, especially being Asian, it's like you're, you know, I think back to like what my dad used to say is like, you're the representation for our family. So if like you do anything wrong, then that like sort of brings the shame. So, you know, and I think both of those movies highlight that really well. And I think the two films sort of share, as you were sort of alluding to, this implicit understanding that an Asian American is not complete psychologically, emotionally, until they get in touch in some deep way with the motherland. And, <laughs> and sort of the, what you ex can extrapolate from that is that there is this hesitance to embrace Asian American culture as something distinct from its relationship to Asia. Or something that has a history uh, in the United States. It's, mm -hmm. it's what's curious to me that, um, Asian American experience is often treated uh, as if it's always fresh off the boat, right? That there's always a recent immigrant that has to talk to her grandmother or her parents. Um, uh, where Asians have been in this country for hundreds of years. Um, so this is a like a curious thing I'm noticing about the specificity of Asian Americans in American media. Um, they have to have this uh, recentness, which I'm not sure exists for other ethnic groups. And you know, just thinking about uh, these couple of movies we're talking about, I'm I'm wondering if there are movies that come to mind that were especially successful. You know, for, for you know that uh, that you know are lesser known. Uh, you know, a lot of times when we we, we talk about uh, representation, we end up kind of navigating by the same stars. But but often there are, there are ones that are kind of more, you know, personal that are uh, not everyone knows, but were, were somehow formative for you. I, I don't know if there are any movies like that for. Old. I mean, my first sort of Asian crush was like Dustin Nguyen on 21 Jump Street. Because <laughs> I was like really young and I just remember him being hot <laughs> and, <laughs> and sort of not like, you know, treated as like this minstrel character. Mm -hmm. So like for me, it was TV and, That's interesting. Um, you know, I also grew up in an Asian household where my family watched a lot of like dubbed like Chinese videos that were dubbed into Vietnamese. So yeah. and. So in my mind, I had a lot of like Asian media and like content and storytelling, um, but it was just sort of, I didn't notice it within Hollywood, I guess. I mean, for me, this is a very gay panel. For me, um, <laughs> the wedding banquet, like I remember my parents, my parents like renting the wedding banquet from like a warehouse 
you know, like video rental store um, uh, because it was like an Asian American film that like was making some sort of like waves, you know, that like uh, it, it was doing well, it did well like in theaters and my mom was like, oh, it's an Asian American director and so she like wanted to rent it and see and then of course it was like gayer than she imagined and like, <laughs> you know, and, and that for her was like uncomfortable but for me was kind of like, oh, like this is something, right? And um, and 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 that's. I mean, that's also an immigrant story. You know, there's a very strong kind of tie to um, motherland. Um, but yeah, the, I think also for me it was just like fascinating that like it was uh, like not just an Asian American story, but also like a gay story, um, and that it was also like done in like done in a way that was like so. Um, uh, that there's like a sensitivity to the humans, right? That it wasn't like gay men as jokes or, you know, as um, as something to laugh at, which was still something that like was happening in the media like when I was growing up. Um, but that was kind of my yeah. first kind of wider mainstream kind of looking at like an Asian American uh, like film. I mean, did, that, did it affect at all, you know, your decision to go into making films? Like, uh, uh, you know, desire to kind of see yourself in some way? Or? It's so, you know, it's funny. Like, I, I made Spawnite kind of before, um, like, it became kind of cool um, to, to, like, have, like, an Asian-American story and um, in the way that it has kind of become, like, a thing in the past, like, year, year and a half. Um, and it was less like, oh, like I want to see myself represented and more that like I just had a story that I wanted to tell and, and with specifics that like I um, felt like would, you know, make the story more, um, just like more uh, uh, interesting in its kind of complexity of like thinking about coming of age. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I have a little bit of a fear of, like, making a film just so that, like, you can fill a void, right? Like, there's a little bit of a danger in that, and then that can also be, like, taken very... Um, uh, you can end up making something that panders to an audience. Um, and, you know, it's, it, it's, it's, a, it's a complicated thing. It's a complicated thing, but... Um, you know, I made Spawn Night like knowing full well that even if no one had seen it, that I would still feel uh, like fulfilled by the, the making of the movie. NAB Show New York is where go-getters in media, entertainment, finance, and advertising connect and champion new content strategies. 300 plus startup innovators and industry respected leaders are gearing up to answer your questions as you demo their latest products and solutions. 50-plus sessions taking place on the show floor will get you up to speed on new business models, trending technology, and the latest creative inspirations. All complemented by several community-focused events set to expand your network and connect you with influencers shaping careers, creativity, and culture. Learn more at nabshowny.com and get your free core package. Uh, Genevieve, I'm curious, you know, when in, in teaching uh, material, how, you know, putting a syllabus together, like how much do these sort of issues come, come to mind when, when you're pulling like even a general survey course uh, that is unrelated to the subject explicitly, you know, I mean, if it comes, comes to mind at all or? 
I feel like the issue of race is inevitable when teaching something like a film history course. I don't necessarily deal, I mean, I, I do sometimes teach um, Broken Blossoms. <laughs> Students love that. It's either that or it's gonna be Birth of a Nation and they are um, really resistant to watching either of those. So I sometimes just go with the shorter of the two. Um, <laughs> but that that's part of the story of what American and for that, that in that sense, Hollywood global cinema has been, is, has been about a kind of, a certain image of what blackness looks like, of what Asianness looks like, what kinds of ethnicities is, and how that's propagated through the movies, reflected in culture, and just uh, reproduced in that sense. So that's something I, that I always address that is, is important to me in kind of any film course. So I don't necessarily teach um, race specifically, but it, it, it always comes up in that, in that way. Yeah. Definitely. Um, I mean, I always have the same questions, uh, you know, for, uh, I mean, in, in terms of, you know, working at the Criterion Collection, I'm, I'm curious, you know, we know it as a place that more or less reflects or helps create the canon. Um, and that's a huge responsibility for, for any, and, you know, to a certain extent, the, the Film Society of Lincoln Center is like that as well. I mean, I'm curious uh, how much, you, you know, that, that comes into the, the thinking about um, what, what movies are, are, are put out on, on a, criterion, a criterion, you know, the hallowed criterion discs. Um, I'm not sure how much I can say, but <laughs> Sorry, put you on the we spot. do have a, we have had a lot of conversations about the representativeness uh, in terms of race, in terms of gender, in terms of nationality of the in the collection. We know that there's a big hole in terms of Chinese cinema. A lot of that has to do with just the availability of the films themselves. We've talked about you know some of the classic films from the 50s, Spring in a Small Town. Those are things that we would love to have, but Oftentimes there are other factors, you know, has the film been restored, where are the rights? So that is an ongoing conversation, and right now, yeah, the question of canon formation is very top of mind. Yeah, no, yeah. I'm sure. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, don't, <laughs> I, I mean, you know, I don't know if this comes up either for, for you, David, in terms of, like, uh, the, either either in marketing particular films or, I don't know. Yeah, so I work at Kino Lorber. We're an art house distributor, and um, I've been there five months. <laughs> so it hasn't been that long, but I've been very well aware of, you know, the films that they acquire. And, you know, my boss, uh, our CEO, Richard Lorber, and our SVP, Wendy Lydell, they kind of make all the decisions on what they acquire, but we have uh, Begone's Long Day's Journey and Tonight here at the New York Film Festival, and, you know, Asian cinema is very important to them because they feel like, you know, a lot of great auteurs or um, upcoming auteurs and are coming out of um, those countries and really great films, and so... Um, one one yeah. thing, I mean, I'm, I'm curious about is, is just, like, the kind of the difference between, like... Asian cinema versus like an Asian American cinema like that to me is so fascinating and I, I like you know it, it's like thinking of these like very established auteurs you know like I mean just speaking very specifically for like Korean like cinema like Lee Chang-dong, Hong Sang-soo, um, Bong Joon-ho, like Park Chan-wook like they it's it's interesting that like so many people 
talk to me about them and i'm a little bit like and assume you would know or or that, or, or that like kinship to them. yeah like like yeah. people were like oh like you know the handmaiden like you know like and spawnite and i'm like i don't really know how those two go together and <laughs> and um and 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 it's just interesting that like you know there's that like the handmaiden did like pretty well in the u.s you know um and then you have like films like Snowpiercer, and um, but yeah, like that, like uh, Asian American cinema is like seen really, or at least from the inside, it's like so different, right? Like it's and and in a very different state of development, you know, like the fact that like it's really hard for me to to like think of a lot of. Asian American auteurs is a little bit like unfortunate. And well, also when there are Asian American auteurs, like I would think of Ang Lee as an Asian American auteur, someone who came from Taiwan and has lived in the States for several decades, but he very rarely deals with Asian American subject matter. That's that's a real thing. I mean, like I, I was at Sundance with Spana in 2016 and like in competition there were five Asian American directors. It was like myself, Jason Liu with The Free World, Daniel Kwan as part of the Daniels for Swiss Army Man, Mir Minan with Equity, and So Young Kim with Love Song. And uh, I, Spawn Night was the only film that had like an Asian American cast, right? And was dealing specifically with like Asian American identity. And you won the awards for it. Well, an, an award, an award. But you know, like, but it is, it, it like for me, it, it's it's exactly that, right? Where there are Asian American directors out there doing amazing things, um, but not necessarily like focusing on Asian American identity film partially because they're really hard to produce, it's hard to, hard to finance, you know, like that's a really big question. And American independent film is so like, so star like driven, you know, like to make these movies, you have to have a, an actor. Like it really, it's, it's a very crazy cycle. We have so cycle. few stars, yeah. Which is why my hope for Steven Yoon is that he will blow make up it. as he should. Yeah. Well, the thing with Steven Yoon too, like I actually still watch Walking Dead with him, and so to see him on that show progress from I think his the beginning of the show he was like a delivery boy, and then he gets like he finally gets like more screen time. He gets a white partner. <laughs> he gets like a lot. His story progresses in a way where the audience really connected to him, and so when you know, he finally gets killed in like the most brutal way on television I've ever seen. It was like such a loss and like there was something in me that was like, oh my God, we lost like our one <laughs> representation of an Asian male on TV that was so good and you know, and I just kind of want it to be where if, if we lose a character like that, I don't feel like, ugh, you know, we just lost him, you know, like I want there to be lots of different representation of like, especially Asian males. Um, but I understand what you're saying. I, I think when I, Andrew and I were at Sundance at the same time, we actually were part of like, he was part of this Asian panel that we had organized at my last job, which included John Chu from Crazy Rich Asians. And you know, it was very empowering and you know, we all talked about visibility. And I just remember the Warner Brothers rep telling me, if Crazy Rich Asians does not kill it, this is gonna really fuck shit up. Like, we won't ever be able to get, 
you know, another like Asian story through the door. Like it has to kill, you know, it has to do well. And thankfully it did, you know. It's so crazy that the future of Asian American representation should hinge on this movie that really is so frothy and kind of unapologetically superficial, which I guess is really the charm of it, right? I mean, we haven't seen Asian Americans have that much fun on screen maybe ever in a Hollywood film. And look so, so hot too. <laughs> like to go from Joy Luck Club where we're like crying our eyes out to Crazy Rich Asians where we're finally just being able to be silly. And um, there's something I think that's empowering for certain people who watch it. But on the flip side, the fact that it's the only film of its kind out there of that scale, I think I understand, I think, what really interested me about that film was less the film itself and more the reactions, the conflicted reactions that I was seeing within the Asian American community, um, particularly Asian Americans who think of themselves as politically progressive and socially conscious. I mean, there was a feeling that there, this was a bad object that was sort of representing us as capitalistic and amorally acquisitive and status-obsessed at a time when, I mean, in the past couple decades, Asian Americans have been used for, have really become pawns for conservative agendas, like mm -hmm. most recently the erosion and um, dismantling of affirmative action. So there was this feeling among um, progressive Asian Americans that we kind of lost the chance to rebrand ourselves as, <laughs> as a group of people who are something other than wealth and status-obsessed, conservative, right? I, yeah, I totally agree. And, and to David's point about seeing more Asian men on screen, to me the film was, Crazy Rich Asians was um, about Asian American masculinity and rescuing that somehow via these cosmopolitan mixed race or um, like uh, the kind of panoply of Asian experience um, hyped up with uh, evidently a lot of working out and um, extravagant wealth and 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 bubbles, right? And um, and that was pro that's problematic to me because it's it's like um, that Asian American men um, can't on their own uh, assert the being sexy and cool and interesting. Um, I mean, this is what the film is to me was reflecting as as and this is a problem um, on their own that that has to go through again this kind of not even immigrant experience but back through a home country. Um, so that was. Yeah, a sticking point. And with regard, as I was thinking, and as I'm hearing you talk about the masculinity issues in the film, that's where I feel like being exposed at an early age to the golden age of Hong Kong cinema, for instance, the golden age of mm -hmm. Hong Kong pop, um, really has been a comfort to me as an Asian American male who, with no sort of role models of what it is to be sexy or glamorous or desirable because you had these idols like Tony Leung or Jackie Chung, these people who were stars and sexy in a very specifically, in a way that did not involve whiteness at all. Mm -hmm. um, 
So I think as we struggle with being distinctly and independently Asian American in a way that's independent from the motherland, um, there's still kind of a desire, at least on my part, and I know on the part of a lot of Asian American cinephiles, to turn back to the glories of what those cinemas produced, just as evidence that there is not something fundamentally undesirable or uninteresting about us. Yeah, I mean, I think the hope is that this film is gonna, you know, I think we were all talking before, you know, whether or not we liked it, and we all kind of had different opinions about it. I think the hope is that this film will open more doors for more stories, and, and you know, I'm very mixed in the film, because I saw it with family and I thought it was fun and the Asians that were in my screening were going wild. Like there were people behind me that were like popping champagne. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I'm in it. But like, I, I personally didn't think it was like the best movie. You know, I wanted like a little something more out of it. I didn't think it was as funny as I thought it would be. I, I, there was a movie article that was actually really well written by an Asian critic and she criticized the film and you know, at the end of the movie, Constance Wu kind of gets accepted by all the rich people. And, you know, then I read it and I thought, you know what, it's, there's, I kind of agree with that, the take from that article, too. I mean, I, I'll say, like, kind of the movie aside, my, I, I mean, kind of going back to what you're saying, Andrew, like, my problem is is like in in the response to it and that like so many people were just so excited that it was making money and like to to hinge a film's success almost entirely on how much money it can make is like really annoying to me and just like not like is like doing a disservice to asian american artists right like that um and i i, I think it's like for me it, it's a it's a kind of um, putting on the pedestal this like idea of like mainstream, you know, and that like what's good is just what's like seen and what makes money, um, and and that's something that I feel like, uh, you know, it, it, it's like it should get chipped away, and and I don't know. I also just believe that like I was like on Twitter, and so many people are like watching Crazy Rich Asians made me like finally proud to be Asian, and I was like. <laughs> The problem isn't the the problem isn't Asian American representation. It's the problem is like white supremacy. Like I just really want to like boil it down. I'm like it has nothing to do with what you're watching on screen. It has everything to do with just like society, right? So like it is. It's just really tricky to me. Um, I can I can like love the movie and I can be like the movie's fun. The movie, you know. But like it kind of I I kind of can't like go along with this wave of just like. Like let's let's be so excited because white people are seeing it. Yeah, it seems there's such a cognitive dissonance for me about the way this film was talked about because on the one hand, it seems like the stakes were so high in terms of the money and what that would mean for the green lighting of future Asian American projects, but the actual critical bar was so low, even for not just with white people but for Asian Americans um, ourselves. I think it was just we wanted to see a movie where we weren't the butt of the joke and we weren't the laughingstock. And with the legacy of Long Duck Dong and Mickey Rooney and Breakfast at Tiffany's, I think a lot of those emotions are still very raw. And 
frankly, to see a movie where, and I'm, my parents are Chinese from Malaysia, and so I have a lot of uh, cultural proximity to what was represented in the film, and it was totally exciting to have little slang words, bits of dialect that only a Chinese person from Southeast Asia would know, um, sort of creating this in-joke um, halo around the film. Um, but yeah, it was after I got out of it and enjoyed the satisfaction and the gratification of that, you just think that can't be it. That can't be all. It's a shame because there's this evident hunger for seeing Asian bodies on screen. There's the hashtag, you know, the starring John Cho hashtag from 2016. Um, and yet there actually is plenty of Asian American uh, experience on screen. It's just not mainstream, as we've been saying. There's a, a very vibrant, independent documentary um, um, uh, networks of um, Asian American makers and uh, and films, and it's it's a shame. I think the the tragedy for me is that those films aren't acknowledged as even existing. Um, it's as if there's East Asian auteurs, and then um, you know uh, the Joylet Club and Crazy Rich Asians, and maybe Searching, um, and that's and there's this big void in between. But in fact, you know we're just not looking in the right places. Well, I mean, like I'll say, uh, like back in 2016, when when Spawnite was having its theatrical, um, I remember uh, there were there were three Asian American indie films like having our theatricals around the same time. It was Spawnite, it was Front Cover, also a strand releasing title, and then um, Soul Searching by Benson Lee. Um, and a majority of the press that was out there about um, Asian American representation had like mentioned none of these three films and could not stop talking about Scarlett Johansson and Ghost in the Shell, could not stop talking about like, you know, Emma Stone in Aloha. Oh yeah, Aloha? where she was half Chinese. Yeah, and 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 like Tilda Swinton. And I just cause I was just kind of like again, it was just this like super um like it was this super fascination with just like money and stars and Hollywood and studio. Um, and it's so crazy to me because like, like especially because of streaming, like, like indie films are more accessible than, than ever, right? So it's just a little bit like, well, you know, what is, what is the community um, uh, ha like have access to or how are they hearing about things like I you know I would screen my film at um, at colleges like you know a year even like a year and a half uh, you know after uh, you know we we premiered at a festival and like gay Korean kids being like I never heard of your movie and I'm like ha like that's terrible like that's terrifying to me right that like you're just finding out about this you know it is like a little bit like yeah, like just how how are these films getting promoted, and and what's the the worthfulness of these films if they're not like, you know, at every AMC, you know, like theater. I think it might be a good time to uh, turn over to the audience and and get their input and ideas and questions. I just want to. I was uh, on the board of Asian Cinevision in the '80s and the '90s when we were doing our film festival. And we had the very same talks going on then 
during all of our workshops. And I'm thinking since then, there have been a number of, you, you mentioned that, well, it all depends on the success of this movie, there'll never be a chance again. But as I think back over those last 20 some years, there have been different forays along. Wayne Wong came and uh, was a hit, and then he, he had a very good career. Joy Luck Club became very big, and everybody was hoping it would build on that. Russell Wong became a heartthrob, and that kind of thing. So, I mean, is there something about these forays, ebbs and flows, before you finally get completely through the door? I mean, is, or is it just the Asian-American market isn't big enough by itself to support Hollywood, Hollywood success, and that it'll always be dependent on indie films uh, to portray and give the kind of portrayals that, that you want to see rather than an Asian-American take on, uh, on the next Dumb and Dumber, that kind of thing. Well, I think a lot of it is also Asian Americans working within the system, you know, and working at the studios and working as writers and getting in those rooms. And I had a friend who, um, he's a filmmaker and he's had moderate levels of successes and he finally got signed to CAA, but it took 10 years for that to happen. And, and he was very excited and he called me and he's like, well, I mean, I've done these meetings, I've gone to LA a million times and it was mostly white, you know, and now, you know, I think with the success of things like Crazy Rich Asians, like, you know, they're, I think they're realizing that like, you know, we need more stories, we want more diversity. So hopefully this will help it a little bit. I don't know, Andrew, you're like in LA and you're like, signed as well like i don't know if you have any opinions on that well i, I guess like uh i will say that the trickiness of like having um like a really big like robust and like financially successful like asian american cinema culture to me like feels a little bit hard to imagine just because the asian american experience is so diverse you know it's so diverse like talking about different you know, uh, countries, cultures, languages, and, and, and then also generations, right? Like, um, one of my, uh, like, uh, one of my friends is a fourth generation Asian American and like he saw Spawnite and was like, oh, like I, you know, I doesn't totally relate to me, you know? And I'm like, I totally get that. And so it is, it is kind of strange. I will say that like the success of something like Crazy Rich Asians and searching you know, there is something about um, that just as there's a, a, a there's the, as the Asian American uh, community has gotten older, there is more of a common language and a common experience that can be touched upon in films that people can relate to on a kind of like a wider level. Um, but yeah, I think for me, it, it, it's like to have a successful Asian American like cinema culture has less to do with like, can we make a lot of money and just can, can we have one that's like super inclusive and diverse and, and has stories from multiple points of view, like even if they're all small, right? But then it's just a matter of like, you know, not just an Asian American audience, but kind of all like film going audiences to like stop caring so much about what's number one in the box office. Amen to that. <laughs> um, another question from the audience. Um, Does the answer lie in distribution in uh, distribution companies, even smaller ones? 
uh, taking so-called risks on these movies? I mean, we, you know, Kino Lorber takes a lot of risks with everything we do. We just had a, you know, you know, we're going to release Long Day's Journey tonight next year. Um, it's had really great success on the festival circuit. It's playing here at New York Film Festival. It has the best reviews in the world. Um, but it also is, you know, half in 3D and it's also very long. Um, and we're not releasing it till next year. So, um, you know, for us, that's, you know, we, we want it to do well. But, you know, you can get the best press, you can get the best support from the film community, but that doesn't always translate. Um, we just had a Pakistani um, drama that we thought was great. It's a beautiful story. It's actually now their Norwegian entry um, for the Oscars called What Will People Say? It had two NPR reviews. It got stellar press, but you know it's only made $30,000 at the box office. So you know we study this stuff on the distribution level to see what we can do marketing-wise, PR-wise. What I'm learning as director of PR is, you know, it's not just good reviews. It's figuring out how to target communities and how to get people, you know, to go out to the movies. Um, you know, I've had talks with theater owners and, you know, we are like trying to reach out to press and get the reviews and get the buzz. And a lot of theater owners were like sometimes, well, if it wasn't for Facebook, our theater would, people wouldn't actually go to our theaters anymore, you know? So there's a lot that goes into like marketing a movie and press is just a small part of that. I mean, I think this is a perennial issue of distribution for independent work. Um, Hollywood only releases so many films a year. I mean, I, I, my sense of Hollywood is that it's incredibly narrow to begin with, that it's hard to find a movie that's not a superhero movie, you know, much less about any kind of person's actual experience. Um, so I'm thinking of um, organizations um, like Visual Communications in Los Angeles that has, um, uh, is its own network, right? That there's screenings um, and meetups. And so it's not just about people um, watching whatever streaming in their living rooms, um, but having communities on the ground that are watching films together. I'm maybe old fashioned that way, um, but I think that's a, a really powerful way to um, encounter work is through your community. I mean, there's also a kind of interesting uh, phenomenon in like uh, New York and other metropolitan areas where you'll have like sort of select releases that you won't really hear about, like, you know, AMC 42, you know. Every month to month, I'm always checking to see what's there because there will be movies there you won't hear about otherwise necessarily. Here in the, in the front. I totally appreciate. I was actually walking by and I didn't realize this talk was happening tonight. And honestly, I was hesitating to come in because I was thinking, oh my God, it's going to be another kind of hyped up discussion about crazy rich Asians. And honestly, I'm so sick of it, you know, from seeing people on social media commenting on how much money it's bringing into the box office, and that's fantastic. But at the same time, to hear you guys just speak from your personal experience um, in the industry, it's refreshing because I do feel, one, that you know, as Asian Americans, we aren't represented and our identity is somehow always connected either to the homeland or to, you know, um, the white man or, you know, however you want to do it, not just as us. 
But what it made me think, and this is, I guess, the dialogue I wanted to kind of create is, like, do you think that it's more of us as Asian Americans not taking the initiative to create the work for ourselves, whether that's a box office seller or not? You know what I mean? Because I'm in drama school right now, and there are only two other Asian people in our school. Um, and I've actually never seen a, an Asian male in my class until this year. I mean, I think a lot of that has to do with growing up with, you know, our families <laughs> and like how I, I, I personally think a lot of it is, you know, being in a creative field was not an option for a lot of Asian Americans because a lot of our parents immigrated here. And when they immigrated here, the choice was to, you know, to be successful, you have to be a doctor, a lawyer to make money. My own parents were very upset when I changed majors to be an English major. They were like, you're never gonna make money. <laughs> and, you know, as I've worked in this industry for the last 10 years, you know, I get a lot of college students who write me. And actually, if I ever do a panel, they always come up and they're very like, how did you do it? And I was like, well, you, you kind of have to do what you want. And even if it risks upsetting your parents and it means you have to take care of yourself. Or in my case, I actually lied to my parents when I changed majors and didn't let them know until later. So, so I, think, I think a lot of it is a lot of Asians, you know, who want to work in the creative field, trying to figure out how they can do that you know, without bringing shame to their family or whatever, but also finding the resources um, to try to get their work out there within, you know, our Hollywood system and our indie film system to, you know, get in those rooms and to write their stories and to get the support and get the money to make the stuff. I know that's my opinion. I just want to make a comment. This isn't exactly addressing your question, but um, it reminded me of something, Andrew, you said about the diversity of Asian and Asian-American experience that we tend to, I mean, when I watched Crazy Rich Asians, I thought, this is about Chinese people. Why isn't this Crazy Rich Chinese people, um, the title? Um, but thinking about the kind of Asians that get the most attention as if it's a singular block, it tends to be East Asian, tends to be Chinese, Korean, Japanese. Um, and completely ignores and, and tends to focus on a wave of immigration, I think, that we're all the kind of children of, right, of like 60s and 70s technocratic um, middle class immigrants, where in fact there's a whole range, of course, of immigrants, different waves of um, people coming from different parts of Asia. And we tend to ignore the Filipinos, the Cambodians, Laotians, Hmong, um, that make up um, a sizable portion of what we would call an Asian American community. I have sometimes a problem with the term Asian to describe um, this entire continent. Um, like when I watch Top Chef and they talk about Asian flavors. I, to me, that's just <laughs> substituting. <laughs> uh, I don't know what that means, actually. Um, but to me, that substitutes too easily for the word oriental, uh, what, what used to be oriental. So I'm, I very much um, want to affirm this kind of diversity of experience and I have very dim hopes that Hollywood, Hollywood would get it, but um, certainly within um, uh, alternative independent communities, yeah. And Asian American as a term is only about 50 years old. I mean, it was really created just for the purposes of political mobilization, and but really the diversity is so vast and so stark 
And yeah, I do think that we need to, as we talk about these issues of visibility in the American media, we do need to talk about the people who truly are invisible even within Asian communities. I mean, if you, back in Asia, the repression of say the Rohingya in Burma or the, you know, the Uyghurs in China, it's, um, there is a lot of political backstory and complexity and intricacy to whose voices get heard within what we have created as a catch-all in Asian. And then just to kind of like go back to the question too, like there is, there is this like, um, this thing about like being a filmmaker, you know, for almost the entire like history of the medium has often meant like uh, coming from a place of pr privilege and being able to like afford it and and then that already kind of like narrows down the the kind of stories that get out there and and I do think that like yeah like for for so many um uh like immigrant uh communities like like being a filmmaker is an extravagance right like it's like you you need to make money in order to like root yourself into this country um, but yeah, you know, like it's a little bit chicken and egg. Like I know so many actually, like I know have so many friends who have tried to enter into a creative field, um, whether that's uh, as a filmmaker or uh, as a visual artist or as an actor, uh, and then they stop, they give up because it's so hard to gain traction. Um, and so I don't think it's for a lack of interest. I think that there's a lot of gatekeeping that happens and. Um, and I think that those are slowly uh, lowering, but it is, it is like a very, I, I, I don't think it's, I don't think the blame should be placed on like the Asian American community for like not encouraging arts more. It, 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 it's, it's, yeah, it's, I think it's a more complicated issue. Um, I think we're running to the, to the end of time that we have, unfortunately. Um, but thank you all so much for, for being here and thank you all for coming out. Thanks. Thank you. You've been listening to the Film Comet Podcast with music by Greg Einge. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comet is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comet has featured in-depth features, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomet.com to purchase a print or digital subscription to Film Comet. Or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, or Kindle. <laughs>